text for the sermon this evening is Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. We'll read that first. And then we'll go back to Joshua and read Joshua chapter 6. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, the end of the prayer that the Apostle Paul offers now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's now turn back to Joshua 6, which illustrates the power of God at work in his church. Joshua 6, now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days." And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpets, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the rear reward came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose up early, rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually 
and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the reward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned unto the camp, so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priest blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all, the, all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel a curse, and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath as ye swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire. And all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household, and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers, which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his holy scriptures unto our hearts. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we made of the Lord a bold request. After having seen our sins and the curse which is 
do unto us for those sins, we then went by faith into the presence of Jehovah, and we requested of Jehovah that he would forgive us our sins. We asked that he would remember them no more. We asked that he would blot them out so that we would not be marked with the iniquities which we had ungodly committed against him. For Jesus' sake, we are assured that God has heard and granted this bold request. We believe that as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy toward them that fear him. And we are confident, even through our partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper in this morning, that God, for Jesus' sake, has forgiven us our sins. It is appropriate, then, for this applicatory service to pause and give praise and glory unto God. We could never pay God back for what He has done for us, but we can stand in awe, reflect on His power, reflect on His grace, and give glory unto the one who is the king throughout all ages, world without end. Glory to the Almighty God. We use that as a theme for the sermon this evening. First, we'll consider his power. Second, his power in us. Third, his power in the church. Verse 20 teaches us about the power of God, of Ephesians chapter 3. Now unto him that is able to do, exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. The words translated here in verse 20, able to do, him that is able to do, are the, is, is the, in the Greek the basis for the English word dynamite. And that offers for us a vivid picture here of the power of our God who is able to do above what we could ask or even think. If you think of an explosive dynamite that's placed in the side of a mountain and then used by the engineers intentionally to blow up part of that mountainside in order to move vast amounts of rock and soil out of the way so that then they might construct a road through that mountainside that offers for us an earthly picture of the God who is able to do dynamite our God goes forth with unstoppable power, and there is nothing that hinders or deters our God from accomplishing what is His good pleasure. Our God is able to do. 
Our God is, we confess, power. It is not simply the case that our God is the highest of all powers. We mustn't imagine it to be the case that there are various categories of power, that there's the United States, and the United States has some power, and then there's the world at large, and the world at large has some power, and then there's the devil, and the devil has some power. But in comparison to all of these categories of power, well, God has at least a little bit more power than all of these other categories. Nor is it even the case that God has significantly more power than the powers that we see evident in the world around us. But rather, when we speak of the God who is able to do above all that we could ask or even think according to the power that worketh in us, what we are confessing is that God Himself is power. It's not as if God is one of several categories of power. And then we can be thankful that, well, we're glad that our God has more power than all these other powers of the world. No, our God is power. So any power that is found in this earth is a derived power. The, 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 the power, the military might of the United States of America is a derived power that God himself has granted unto the United States. The power of the devil to go forth as a roaring lion is a power that the devil has derived from God Himself who is power. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Psalm 62, verse 11. The very name of our God in the Hebrew tongue is Elohim, which means Almighty. His name calls attention to the fact that He is power. How often do we not doubt, though, this power? Of God. Think of the Israelites just a few days into their wilderness wandering. They ran out of water, they ran out of food, and immediately they doubted and they murmured and complained. Think earlier in history of Sarah, married to Abraham, who staggered in disbelief at the promise of God that she would have a child in her old age and laughed. Think of Peter, who so long as he had his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ was able to walk on the water. But then as soon as Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and doubted, he began to sink. And we are by nature no different than these biblical examples of those who have struggled with doubt. 
And so it is then that this verse heaps up for us words, descriptive words which communicate unto us the power of God. The text says that He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. The text in heaping up these words is demonstrating the transcendence of God's almighty power. But from a human perspective, as we look at these words that are heaped up, we might say that the writer here is redundant in adding description after description of God's power. He could have said it in less words. Why then does he add these seemingly unnecessary qualifications which describe the power of God? And yet you understand that these descriptive words are neither redundant or unnecessary, but there's a purpose, there's a divinely inspired purpose that the Holy Spirit has in giving unto us all these words. The Spirit gives us these words so that we would stand in awe of our God and the power that belongs unto Him and to Him only. This verse is not attempting to give unto us a textbook definition of the power of God, but this verse is seeking to elicit from the believer a response of praise unto God for His almighty power revealed unto us. That's why the inspired writer heaps up these words. So consider them with me. First of all, we look at the word above. He's able to do above all that we ask or think. It's not only the case that our God is capable of performing what we ask of Him, but He is capable of performing above what we ask of Him. Think of a child who asks of his mother bread. And mother grants unto that child bread, and the child is thankful for that bread and impressed that mother could give unto that child bread. And yet that child has no idea that that mother's ability to give the child bread is a small part of the abilities of that mother. She could do far above giving that child bread. Our God is capable of doing above what we ask of Him. And then the next word, all. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all. Not only is it the case that our God is powerful enough to perform above some of the requests that we give unto Him, but our God is powerful to perform above everything that we ask of Him. For those of us who are human beings with finite limitations, it's hard for us to understand 
how powerful God is that He can perform above all that is asked of Him. Anyone on this earth who has any measure of responsibilities, whether in the home or in the workplace or serving even in the church, understands that there are certain things that one simply cannot do. There are requests in the workplace. There are desires that the children have of parents. There are requests from fellow church members that although one would love to be able to assist in saying yes unto those questions, yes, I'll help you with this or with that, the reality is because we are finite creatures with limitations of strength, limitations of ability, and limitations of time, that there are times where the answer that we must give is, I can't. As much as I would love to, I can't. God never has that. He never has it. Or someone comes unto Him and asks Him, petitions something of God, and God responds unto that individual saying, I would love to be able to assist you in this way, but I simply lack the power, the time, the strength, the ability to do it. Able to do above all. And then the text adds these words, exceeding abundantly able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And in the original, these two words are but one word. And the idea of these words is superabundant or even beyond measure. It is impossible to measure the power of God. We like to measure the power of things. We measure horsepower in engines. There is no way that we can measure the power of God. It is super abundant. His power is exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. The reality is it's not only the case that God is able to do what we ask of Him. But our requests, we might say, hardly even scratch the surface of what God is capable of performing. We ask Him for daily bread, and yet Jesus Christ teaches us that if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, God would move mountains. We ask Him for deliverance from sins. And yet the reality is that if it was the will of God, He could in a word destroy the devil and all evil that is found upon the face of this earth. 
He is the God who created out of nothing. He holds the sun, the moon, and the stars in their courses above. And now He is the God who comes to us and tells us that He's able to do exceeding abundantly above what we could ask or think. Think. The final word that I call your attention to here those that are heaped up upon another above all that we ask or think. The limitations of the human mind are such that we cannot even conceive in our thoughts of the power of God. It's not only the case that we cannot measure God's power, but it's also the case that we cannot understand fully the extent of God's power. We cannot understand the extent of God's power because by nature we dwell in darkness. And it's because we dwell in darkness that we cannot comprehend the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. Because we dwell in, or the reality is, we dwell in darkness because of our sinfulness. There remain in us, because of our sins, only some, quote, glimmerings of the natural light. That's the language of the canons of Dort. There remain in man since the fall, quote, glimmerings of natural light, whereby he retains some knowledge of God. That's all that is left within us. Adam, prior to the fall, when he dwelt in the original state of holiness, was able to conceive far more of the power, the transcendence of God. But at the time of the fall into sin, man lost most of his ability to understand God. And so there remains in man then, according to the canons of Dort, at brief four, only glimmerings of natural light whereby he retains some knowledge of God. We cannot even conceive in our minds of what God is capable of performing. We ought at times to recall this to our minds, that our God is capable of doing above what we could ask or even think. For there can be times, are there not, where a person becomes so downcast, so disheartened, so anxious, that one can hardly even think happy thoughts. For one can hardly even comprehend what it would be like to have peace, to have joy, to have satisfaction. At those times, when according to the Father's providence, the, the, the trials of life so weigh down upon us that we can hardly conceive of what joy and happiness is, let us remember 
that God is capable. Now unto Him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think. We might not be able to think it, but God is. This power, according to the end of verse 20, is in us. According to the power that worketh in us. The the apostle is not merely giving unto us here an abstract description of the power of God. But the, the, the inspired writer is teaching us about God's power so that you, who are God's children, can believe and be confident of this truth, that God's power is at work in you. Young men oftentimes are impressed with the concept of power. We're attracted to power. We like powerful things. We like powerful engines, powerful pickups. And it could be that a young man sees a neighbor who has gotten a high horsepower vehicle. And that young man, as he looks at his neighbor, is wowed with the power that his neighbor has in that vehicle. He's impressed in it. And if he's honest, maybe there's a little bit of jealousy in his heart because he doesn't have that high horsepower vehicle. Because the reality is that that high horsepower vehicle does absolutely nothing for him. He can look at it from a distance. He can admire it. He can be wowed by it and even jealous by it. But it does absolutely nothing for him. And distinction from that is the power of God. It is not the case that we simply admire the power of God. It is not the case that we simply look off and see what God has done for the neighbor. It is not the case that we are to be jealous of the power of God that is at work in the neighbor. But it is the case that the power of God is at work in us. It works in us, it works in ways that we might not even be able to comprehend in us. The power of God might be at work in us below the level of our consciousness so that we, we cannot even conceive of the power of God at work in us. And yet, the Scriptures teach us that this power of God does work in us. Consider the Apostle Paul is an illustration of the power of God at work in him. Early in his life, Paul, then called Saul, was an unbeliever. He was an enemy of the church, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a tormentor of Christians. The Apostle Paul consented unto the deacon Stephen's death. He was, Philippians 3, verse 5, in Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. According to his own confession in Acts 23, verse 6, Saul confessed, I am a Pharisee 
the son of a Pharisee. But then behold the transformation in Paul. A remarkable change, changed from Saul to Paul, changed from a Pharisee to a Christian, changed from a persecutor of Christians to a minister and an apostle unto the Christians, changed from one who hungered and who thirsted after himself unto one who hungered and who thirsted after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What is the explanation for this transformation in the life of Paul? The only answer is that the eternal power of God through Jesus Christ was at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. Consider then, what is the power of God that is at work in you? It is none other, is it not, than the application of the benefits of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the work of God in you. We speak of the work of Jesus Christ for his people. And on the other hand, we speak of the work of Jesus Christ in his people. At the cross, Jesus Christ earned for you righteousness, holiness, and satisfaction. But now, in time, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God gives unto you and in you the application of those blessings of Jesus Christ. What is the power of God at work in you? It's regeneration. As God takes you who once were dead in trespasses and sins, and God quickens you, gives unto you the life of Jesus Christ. What is the power of God at work in you? It's faith. Faith. Whereby God unites you with that unbreakable bond unto Jesus Christ who is the author and the giver of life. What is the work of God in you? It's justification. Justification by faith so that you can know in your soul that you are righteous as you stand before God, that you do not fear God, the great and the living judge, but you are confident that God looks upon you as his own child. That's the power of the work of God in you. No one else can give that testimony unto you but the Holy Spirit as he applies the blessings of Jesus Christ. What's the power of the work of God in you? It's sanctification. As God changes you, not all at once, but over the course of your whole life, so that more and more you put off that old man of sin and put on the new man of Christ, knowledge of God, righteousness, and holiness. What is the power of God at work in you 
Is it not this? That He preserves you. Even though we fall time and time again. Even though we doubt the power of God. Even though we struggle with disbelief and weakness of faith. Yet God preserves His church as a vineyard. He nourishes us. He protects us. And even in our falls, He lifts us up and sets us again and again upon the rock, which is Jesus Christ. Behold, the power of God at work in you. Then the Apostle concludes in the 21st verse that God is at work in the church. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. That God would be glorified in the church. And that God would reveal His power in the church. Is an amazing thought. For consider, what is the church made up of? Who constitutes the church? Is it not Rahab? who is called in the Scriptures the harlot Rahab, who is brought into Old Testament Israel, the church? Who makes up the church? Is it not David, who fell into a great and lamentable sin, even sins of murder and adultery? Who makes up the church? Is it not Paul, earlier Saul, tormentor and persecutor of Christians? Peter, who denied Jesus Christ three times over? You could hardly pick a more inglorious group of people to be the church in which the glory of God is going to be revealed. But that's the power of God. He takes that which is by nature filthy, that which is filled with so many blemishes and wrinkles and spots, and infirmities that there is nothing attractive about that group of people. And God by His power so works in that church that that church is transformed. Unto Him, unto God, be glory in the church. God could have chosen anything that He wanted 
for his name to be glorified in, and yet God chose that in and through the church his name would be glorified. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. The church's power and the church's glory is only found in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, unto whom the church is united in that bond of marriage. Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. And the glory of the church must never be evaluated independently of the bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ. For if we were to evaluate the glory of the church apart from Jesus Christ, we must reach the conclusion that the church is filled with those who are filthy and undesirable and sinful, those who are anything but glorious. But when the church is evaluated in union with Jesus Christ, then the glory of the church becomes evident. The glory of the church is not found in the members of themselves, but the glory of the church is found in her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He is glorious, for he is holy. And that which is holy is beautiful. Jesus Christ in his love gives unto his church his own holiness. He gives unto the church the white robes of righteousness. So that then as the church has evaluated as those who are knit unto Jesus Christ in that bond of marriage, the church is not ugly, but the church is beautiful. Always the Christian must maintain and defend this reality because the devil does not want you to think that the church is beautiful. The devil would have you rather look at the members of the church one by one as they are by nature. It is only by faith that we believe that God is glorified in the church by Jesus Christ. Behold the power of God. God was the one who commanded Israel to walk around Jericho for seven days straight. Day one, day two, day three. How they must have questioned in their minds what is going on. Why would God have us walk in silence day after day after day? around this city. But God was at work. What man considers foolishness, God uses as his wisdom to build up his church. God destroyed Jericho. And God preserved Rahab. Because God will be glorified in the church. Not unto us, but unto God. Be glory given. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Father and our God in heaven, thy ways are beyond our ways. Thy thoughts are beyond our earthly thoughts. Thou art the God who is beyond our comprehension. Thou art also the God whom we love. We are confident that thou art at work in us. We believe that thou art the God who preserves thy church throughout all ages, world without end. We eagerly look forward to the day when we will behold thy glory face to face through thy Son, Jesus Christ, when we fellowship with him and the church triumphant in heaven. That thou preserve us until that day and graciously pardon the sins even of this worship service. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.